0: Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts, changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Synthesizers. If you're any kind of music fan, you'd be very familiar with the sounds they make and how electronic instruments have influenced rock, pop and avant-garde music over the years. What many people don't know is that the Granger Museum in Melbourne was at the heart of electronic music experimentation in the 60s and 70s. Composer Keith Humble transformed the museum into the Granger Centre, an electronic experimentation studio for students and composers. Humble equipped the Granger Centre with the latest analogue synths made by electronic music studios in London. EMS. The synthesizers from EMS allowed local composers to create entirely new sounds to incorporate into their experimental music and processes. For a brief period of less than a decade, the Granger Museum resonated with this sound of the future. Synthesizers Sound of the Future tells the story of this forgotten period in the Granger's history. The exhibition brings together for the first time the suite of early EMS instruments on loan from the Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio, MESS. Evoking the ethos of this vibrant period of musical creativity in Melbourne, the exhibition also features cutting-edge video art by electronic artist David Chesworth, produced on the EMS Spectre Video Synthesiser from around 1980. Today, I break free of the voice booth and make my way up Royal Parade in Parkville to the Granger Museum at the University of Melbourne to visit the Synthesizers: Sound of the Future exhibition. I'll talk to artist and composer David Chesworth, Byron Scullin, composer and director of the Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio, and Heather Gaunt, curator of the Granger Museum. First up, I meet Heather inside the museum, we do a walk and talk through the space and marvel at the Sound of the Future exhibition's many items on display. In the background you can hear these instruments and exhibits contributing a wonderful soundtrack to our chat. The Sound of the Future, it's such a lofty kind of title for an exhibition. Can you tell me the idea behind putting it together?
1: The title is actually sort of interesting because it Nah, it, it deliberately I was going for a sort of nostalgic feel to it. It's supposed to be a little bit naive and nostalgic in the sense of how we sort of word our feelings about that period. So I could have given it a, a much more hip title, but Sound of the Future, Synthesiser Sound of the Future felt, felt the right feel. Anyway, so the exhibition came together directly out of my investigation into the Granger archive. I've only been in this role as the curator of the Granger for 18 months, and so it's still a process of of finding my way through this incredibly rich, diverse and and deep um, archive that we have here on um, Granger and his material. And so as part of that, I was looking at some of our video content that we had and looked at a video from 1976, which showed Les Craythorn working with this large synthesiser the uh, Synthi 100 and the video showed some footage of Percy Granger working with Burnett Cross who was the physicist that he worked with in the 40s and the 50s and looked at the translation of this uh, free music score that uh, Granger had written um, and that we have a legend of in the museum legend as in a, a display legend and seeing Les Craythorne translating that and making it into sound for the first time with the Synthi 100.
0: It's um science and art it's a physicist and a musician.
1: Yeah and it's really I guess typical of Granger's way of thinking because he was such a broad thinker across all disciplines. Sort of almost an undisciplined thinker in some ways he's been described at partly because he actually never went through university himself so he didn't have that sort of disciplinary structure of of codifying ideas in the way that we might expect now which uh, I think gave him the opportunity to think and to conceive of new ideas in a very free sort of framework. And he naturally was someone who wanted to break down all these barriers and explore shifts away from Western systems of of metre and and, uh, and rhythm and uh, pitch. So... The idea when he bumped into Burnett Cross on a railway station apparently in America in the 40s and was like, oh, yeah, you were interested in some in some things and, and Burnett himself was an amateur musician as well as being a physicist and was the sort of perfect partner for Granger. And then they literally, at his house at White Plains in New York State, were building all these crazy machines out of paper, cardboard, bits of stuff they found in the junk piles, but then Burnett was sort of feeding in this technological side of putting in the electricity, literally, into these cardboard structures, and together they were were doing these crazy experiments. But as, as a real outlier, because what I found fascinating with this is that the Princeton Columbia studio, electronic studio, was already in development not that far down the road doing some pretty amazing things. And Granger didn't connect up with this. He he was, as I say, an outlier in his thinking.
0: And what period of time in, I guess, in the 20th century was, was most of Granger's interest in this area uh, concentrated in? Was it the 50s?
1: Well, in fact, Granger himself describes thinking about free music concepts in as early as his childhood um, there's these sort of stories of that he tells himself of being on a boat on albert park lake as a child and looking at the lapping of the waves on the side of the boat and this sort of triggering ideas about waveform literally and connections with sound and and with this this sort of freedom of of pitch and gliding tone this sort of which was his his, his ultimate conception in in freeing up pitch from this step-step system. And so he was composing in this way from a very early age as well. So literally the first decade or two decades of the 20th century he was creating music that was breaking down these structures, early aleatoric music. Things like John Cage would be doing 50 years later he was already in that headspace. So his experimentation though really didn't start happening in terms of the instruments, trying to create a new instrument that could make these sounds that he heard in his head until the 40s or the 50s. But it was a work of a of a lifetime, really.
0: I'm always um, fascinated by the vision of Melbourne in the 50s, you know, post-Olympics. It's sort of, you know, the newsreel footage of, of scenes of Melbourne. It's all nice and quaint. But there was this underground scene of avant-garde musicians making music and and putting Um, their ideas together. I always find that quite interesting.
1: I think that is fascinating. But the other side of it, of course, is that at the surface and what people saw was a very conservative music tradition that was happening. And and the conservatorium next door to the Granger Museum here inevitably was teaching uh, a a classical Western tradition of music and music uh, performance. And Keith Humble, who we'll talk about more later in terms of this exhibition, was uh, a product of that conservative Melbourne period but also an example of someone who was really like Granger, uh, an outlier a radical thinker, a utopian thinker in terms of his own musical practice and, and compositional ideas and so he, he's such the, the classical example of someone growing up in Melbourne in this period, a prodigy on the piano, became a, a jazz pianist and then um, as John White Oak who's done a lot of research on Keith talks about uh, this the returned soldiers came back from the Second World War. And so the the positions in the jazz clubs that these younger musicians were able to fill who were in their teenagers who hadn't had to go to war, suddenly they were seeing that they might have been losing their jobs. There was this returned um, sort of musical expertise. And so then an incentive to to study further, to gain more qualifications and to look internationally and beyond. And this is what Keith did. So he came to the conservatorium, studied and then rapidly Got, a, got himself a, a scholarship to go to the UK which he found actually similarly difficult and conservative in a lot of ways and ended up going to Paris where he had a fantastic time for a decade um, hanging out with the avant-garde and really doing some incredible things. So then his response coming back to Melbourne in 56 meeting Granger here at the Granger Museum and being fascinated by Granger's thinking, but also a little bit horrified about what was happening in Melbourne or what wasn't happening in Melbourne compared to what he'd been experiencing. So then it was another decade before he came back in 66 to take up a role at the conservatorium. And he literally brought with him this, this whole head full of, of experimental improvisation, um, electronic music ideas. And um, in, in some sense, it sort of blew the Granger apart. <laughs>
0: The exhibition uh, concerns itself mainly with that period of time between 1969 and 1974. Again, a, rel- a relatively early time in terms of the mainstream acceptance of, I guess, electronic music and synthesizer music. Was it still a unique thing for, like, in the city of Melbourne, and not just uh, in Melbourne, but the, in Australia and and more particularly the conservatorium.
1: There were pockets of activity in early electronic music in Melbourne certainly through that period and before so some key figures that stand out for example uh, Val Stephen an amateur um, musician uh, and a a medical practitioner was working in this space built his own synthesizer and was doing some really amazing things and in fact was the first to publish um, or have a, a record produced of electronic music on an international label at this time and Bruce Clark, who had the jingle workshop was already working in this space as well um, in a very commercial sense very different to Val Stevens so he produced the first fully electronic jingle for a cigarette commercial at around this time so it's not as if there was nothing happening but it was um, in in little pockets and certainly Bruce Clarke had some connections with Keith Humble, we've got um, some ephemera in the exhibition that talks about a workshop that he did as part of the Contemporary Music Society in the late 60s. But I think what Keith did was to create a real centre of activity and a hive of excitement around early electronic music in association with his ideas on education the, the democratisation of music education he was very passionate about which again aligned beautifully with Percy's ideas and significantly he brought some of the earliest commercially produced analog synthesizers into the museum to create this electronic music studio and i think that that's a key shift because instead of it happening happening in someone's private home in their Garage or in their kitchen. Instead, Keith was able to create a context in which students and other musicians could come to a place and use these professionally made instruments uh, and experiment with this amazing new sound. And this is actually what happened. And the reason why I've limited the exhibition period to, as you say, sort of late sixties to nineteen seventy four, is specifically because that's the time that Keith Humble set up the studio here at The Granger and that this hive of activity was happening. And then in 74 he moved on to La Trobe University and set up the fantastic music department up there. And really that was a, a, a shift of activity here at the Granger. And within a few years the electronic instruments had that were still here were taken out, moved next door to the conservatorium and it was a new a new period of of time Uh, and the Granger went back probably to being a sleepy place for for a bit longer.
0: Um, There's a quote by you, in fact, in a previous interview somewhere where you said um, the music and the instruments that uh, are part of the exhibition and also part of the Granger generally uh, are current and contemporary, yet drawing us back to the period of resistance and experimentation. Um, That resistance is a very important part of, I guess, uh, investigating these particular sounds. But I'm also interested in that retrofuturism aspect of what the idea of what uh, I guess composers and, and people like Keith um, thought that the future would sound
1: like. And, and we explore that idea in a number of different ways in the exhibition. And I guess one of the ways that we can visually show that idea of, of resistance and change is through the, as an example, through the graphic scores that we have on display. Uh, example being Keith Humble's Music for Monuments. The Music for Monuments is, is um, is an example of lots of different facets of this notion of resistance and of change and of of breaking out both in terms of sound, in terms of process, in terms of notation, sort of on every level in terms of performance. So the the score itself is a chance piece of music with different chance events that happen. The the sound uh, texture that is built up in the music is a combination of live performed chance sounds, of pre-recorded sounds which in this instance with Keith he recorded through educational workshops that he ran here at the Granger, so snippets of of found sound from from people creating music and creating different sounds and then visually how to represent this and, and take it forward into the future so that other people could have a go at it are these scores which combine traditional notation in this case of this score there's a bassoon line which is traditionally notated but immediately above it is a strip of Color and graphic shape, swirls and twirls and dots and squiggles and and sweeps of orange watercolor spread across the score. Very, very untraditional. Very challenging for future players to perform. Uh, and as a as a package, it, it sort of represents this breaking down of what we expect music to be, what we think it's going to sound like, or how it is structured, um, and an expectation that the audience is also going to to do something different with it. And um, Uh, We had an event last week, Charles McInnes, with Ensemble Density, who is another great collaborator with this exhibition. And as part of the program, Charles ran some sessions with Princess Hill Primary School students here at the Granger doing some experimental workshops on making music. And he was posing to to the students that question of, after they'd made all these sort of noises, is this music? And it was great. These little grade fives and sixes going, oh, nah. or yeah, maybe. Or, well, well, why? You know, what is it that makes it music? So then we ran, he ran another session like this with adults on the weekend on a Sunday a few days later. Again, we did similar exploratory activities. He posed the same sort of questions. We had more of an adult discussion, but (laughs) similar outcomes, nah, yeah, maybe, Um, and all sorts of things in between. And Charles recorded parts of these workshops, as had Keith previously, and then that fed into a performance of monuments, or a section of monuments at the recital centre on Tuesday a a little while ago, um, using these fragments, and as members of the audience we were invited in a chance sort of system to, to contribute to the sound. So so different to the sort of music that was happening in in Melbourne in the in the 60s to have Keith bring this sort of thing in and and be doing this. But what I find is really interesting is that he didn't throw away traditional music in any sense. He wanted to explore the full spectrum of of making sound and, and making sound collaboratively and so he formed a society called the SPPNM, Society for the Private Performance of New Music it was a bit private, a bit, bit clicky, bit niche, uh, but nevertheless with that it was a, again a combination of both traditional music at, all the way through to the present. So you might have a program that had Mozart, Granger's Random Round and Verace, something by Verace or Bartók or Humble himself and it was more about the process of performance and what could be discovered through um, experimentation and performance and working together in new modes, than it was about some sort of ear text or, or perfect performance. So everything he did was was deliberately. It was almost like you know, throw him a question. It's like, okay, how can I do the opposite to this? What, what can I? How can I challenge this? Which was very much a, the Granger conception as well. What, what
0: drove Keith and I guess to an extent Percy to challenge these things? What what drove them to try and find these? new ways of composing and these new ways of thinking about music and performance. What what do you think that is?
1: It's about their understanding of sound and I think as musicians and composers, a musician is trained obviously to hear very richly and to consider those sort of intersections of of pitch and rhythm and all all the things that make up a a sound Uh, and obviously if you're composing you're you're trying to, to do this in hopefully an individual way I mean you're not going to be reproducing the sound of the past you're going to be trying to create something new and I think for both of them they were working within a a context of the obviously the world in which they lived the sorts of sounds that they heard and how they expressed their way of existing in the world so for Granger if you think he was literally the most traveled composer of his era because he was this professional pianist he was endlessly touring around but he was hugely curious about everything so as he went you can imagine these huge ears listening to sounds gets off the ship in durban what what do you hear on the site on the on the in the docks the, the sounds the calls the, the 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 music of the of the local people um he's going to all the concert halls he's going to museums and he's looking at structures even of you know he was fascinated by beating and uh in terms of you know Um, Native American beadwork vests and things like this. So colours and shapes and forms in other forms apart from sound. So he's... And also he's working in a world in which um, technology is suddenly opening up new ways that you could mix sounds. So from, you know, 1880s when he's born and he starts hearing the sounds in Melbourne... Of uh, Chinese music. He's fascinated by this opportunity to hear things and then um, he's travelling in Europe and then of course um, the radio and radio broadcasts become available and, and recording. He's one of the first to record on records and so we've got letters where he's for example comparing the voice of uh, opera singer Tetrazzini with Nellie Mel- Melba and be able to say well Melba has the- Melba's voice has the sound of the mid-distance blues of the Australian landscape whereas Tetrazini's is He actually uses this phrase, the whore voice of the European tradition or something. So he's having an opportunity to hear sounds that were unlike what a previous generation could do. And because he is this endlessly curious person, he puts it together in new ways and I think for Keith it's the same sort of thing. It's where we, uh, Keith had the opportunity going to Europe to hear these early analogue synths and to experience electronic sound for the first time and clearly that blew his mind and the opportunities of literally feeding electric current into a machine and making absolutely new sound that nobody had ever heard before. That's, that's got to be one of the most exciting things a composer could ever be given.
0: David Chesworth is an artist and composer mostly known for his experimental and minimalist music, but he's also worked with post-punk groups, contemporary ensembles, theatre and experimental opera. In 1978, he recorded an album titled 50 Synthesizer Greats, actually 37 tracks of minimal synth investigations, full of humour and playful experimentation. The album was recorded in his parents' lounge room when he was 21 on a reel-to-reel tape machine using a monophonic Korg synthesizer.
2: I've always been somebody who's um, explored opportunities (laughs) and um, my friend Philip Brophy had a a synthesizer um, that he was using and I said can I borrow it and figure out what it does. And so, um, the actual making of those tunes was the act of figuring out what that particular synthesizer did. Um, it was um, a Mini Korg 700, which is a monophonic synthesizer, meaning it could only make one sound at a time. and had a whole lot of pre-switches and um, lots of little things you could, uh, sa- um, modifications to the sound, you could switch in and out and do lots of fancy things. So I wanted to figure what, out what they were. And so each of the tracks, there were 50 tracks originally, is, a different, is an exploration of a different setup and patch. And while I'm doing that, I thought I'd put down these kind of tunes. And I'd also just bought a reel-to-reel a tape recorder, which had just come on the market as a consumer item. I think I paid $219 for it at Douglas Hi-Fi at the time.
0: Not the store with the big reel to reel. machine I think in front. Yeah, I remember that yeah. store.
2: And I could layer sounds up. So as I explored one particular sound, I could then bounce that across as I explored another sound. And before I knew it I was making these kind of proto compositions.
0: Even before that, like what actually um, got you interested
2: in electronic music generally? trying to think why electronic music I was definitely interested in music and definitely interested in sound and retrospectively I just think I I had such a cute hearing I didn't know at the time but I was if I heard a sound and didn't know what it was I would go and investigate it I I would or I'd stay up at night I'd be worried because I was hearing something in the house and I just didn't know what it was and I'd fabulate these kind of things that it might be so there was a cute sort of awareness of, of any sound, and then I really enjoyed listening to music. And we only had a small um, record player that, and a bunch of secondhand records, but uh, they ranged from uh, sort of fifties pop to classical music. And then I listened to the radio. But I, I think that enjoyment of sound meant that I enjoyed what was in between the radio stations, like the sort of shifting tones and textures. Like, what are they? You know, like I want to know what they are too, and what's causing them. And I think just hearing about synthesizers, I remember in popular culture, you know, you started to hear about them. um, um, It may be in Emerson, Lake and Palmer, or or some group. They're using this synthesizer, and you'd heard the the solo on um, on a song, and you heard I heard the synthesizer, and I imagined this. This like organ-like machine with strange massive tubes coming out of it or something and it became this mysterious object that I wanted to find out more about so I think as a cultural thing I wanted to find out what it was and what it did as much as just having some sort of you know essential enjoyment of what came to be called electronic music.
0: So when you started uh, working, I guess, with synthesizers on a more um, permanent and more general way, um, very much like um, Keith Humble's um, work in the late 60s and early 70s, in the late 70s there was a small enclave of people doing the type of stuff that you were attracted to and you were contributed to. Um, that, that would have been, again, way ahead of its time. How was it perceived, I guess, in the Melbourne music scene?
2: Yeah, well that's interesting because it does um, bring in this exhibition here quite interestingly because I I learnt, um, firstly I went and saw some concerts and they were one or two put on here at the Conservatorium. I found out later, you know, begrudgingly by the Conservatorium, but in fact they were um, quite interesting. Peter Towardon and Keith Humble and um, uh, other electronic musicians uh, put on these concerts and I go and see them and there were these amazing experiences because they weren't performers there were massive speakers and it had all this air of institutionalized importance and um, it, it really was quite uh, remarkable. James Penberthy was another uh, person but Keith went on to um, establish the music department at La Trobe University and brought in um, other um, artists such as Warren Burt from, uh, from America who was a very interesting sort of modernist um, but electronic music composer. And I learnt um, uh, from him, it, it just opened a door. You didn't have to be a musician to, to do the course at La Trobe. And so, again, this thing was just presented before me. It wasn't that I sorted out and, and had this kind of incredible passion. Well, maybe I did have a passion, but I didn't know how to, how to funnel it. And then Warren said, he, "Welcome to the world of experimental music." He gave a whole course on it and showed all this incredible minimalist stuff, um, noise-based stuff, um, just a, a huge kind of catch-up on what had been happening over the last few years in in Europe and in America. And had these synthesizers uh, at Latrobe, which he and uh, Jim Sosnan, um made, and we he said now you're going to learn how to use these things. So it, it was like one, a course thing and it was just like awesome. And I remember this moment when I was sitting down at a, this little um, synthesizer which had three oscillators and no keyboard, it was just um, patches. And you, by, by setting them up in certain ways, you can get these sort of cascades of melodies of things happening or, or noises and sounds. I remember at that point thinking, Hey, I think I'm writing music here. I think, <laughs> isn't this what? This is like a compose. I, I think maybe I could be one of those people that does that, but in this very weird, weird way. So it was actually there. This activity, which kind of did come from here, like Keith Humble, um, having the, the the passion to make music a lot more uh, available to everybody, which of course it is now, massively, but at the time, it was like how to get it out of these um, institutions where, and, and, and equipment was very expensive, how, how can people get access to this and um, Trobe was one of the places that opened that up and said firstly, you can just do whatever you want, and make music and, um, and you can find like very cheap things like cassette players and, and uh, things like that and the other thing that was going on at the same time was the punk, post-punk thing, where, of course, the ethos was, you can do any, anything, pick something up and do it. So that was feeding in at the same time, especially at uh, venues like the Clifton Hill Community Music Centre, where um, uh, yeah, ended up doing some things. I think
0: Heather touched on this before about how, and so did you, about how um, it's very accessible, and it's very inviting in terms of anybody can start noodling and start creating something. And not only that, even before that, build something, then play it, and then create things, and then compose things. It's all sort of within one kind of motion or one action.
2: Well, I thought, yeah, synthesizers, um, yeah, I kind of, I, I think about them like in the sense of Percy Granger it sent, uh, idea of free music and he wanted to find new ways to express the world in, in creating a um, yeah free music and, and I like to think about synthesizers as as freedom machines in a sense too where the um, and each synthesizer has its own version of freedom because its also there 's lots you can do but only within the way it is set up. But I think it allows, yeah, the the per, a person to be a, a maker of music and a pl- a creator and a performer all at the same time, um, especially um, now um, people are so interested in live performance using synthesizers. There was a, a point when it was originally, often they were used to play transcriptions of things or people would notate scores and then they'd get... Uh, um, one of these synths out and then recreate the sound that they'd already scored but now people are um, are using them to to make music in the moment which is serving them but in, in, in a lot of instances, a lot of gigs, um, serves an audience that enjoys that, that, that spontaneity. So the idea of what music is, this thing that's, you know, specialized people Play from a transcription, you know notation, whatever, um, or um, record in a recording studio. I think synthesizers cut through all that and enable something quite spontaneous and immediate to happen, which has gives people a, a, a connection with the here and now in, in a lot of concerts, and without any formal
0: what's known as formal training, I guess as well.
2: That's right. So the whole stigma of of having to understand music, you know, from a sort of a Western point of view, is is, is no longer relevant, um, because the palette, the, the sonic palette that's opened up, is is completely off the grid when it when you compare it to traditional music making, where you have you know twelve notes within an octave. Here you can have as many notes as you want, and um, you know, it doesn't have to conform to a particular expressive sort of set of parameters that, that fit in with a, a way of thinking. And so, yeah, they, they do enable like completely out of the box and other ways of, of making sound. Not to say that it's the, there's still this you know within communities and all that there's a set, you know there's all these genres and ways of this is the way you know a certain style should be. So there are still those issues I think of. People um, trying to still trying to find their own personal expression that um, that fits in or challenges or interacts with other people in an interesting way. That that always remains a, a kind of a, a, a contentious thing, I guess. Analog versus digital. We can now get
0: plugins and laptops um, and uh, software that does all the things back in the 70s where you had to physically. Yeah. plug in things with chords yeah. um, is there uh, anything in particular you would prefer are they both good
2: yeah I think they're both good I do at the moment in electronic music performance around the city and people love seeing knobs being turned and <laughs> plugs being plugged in they don't like seeing laptops so much and and keyboards being played but but they're, they're okay up to a point so there's this sense of um, getting to this essentialness of 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 music making being yeah connections between modules and knobs turned but ultimately sonically um, I think there's there's lots of similarities between you know what digital can do and what analog can do and um, but how digital has allowed the sort of natural world to be incorporated into music making is fantastic like programs like live and uh, max uh, MSP have enabled this incredible rich palette where the electronic meets the acoustic and then you get these hybrid forms. And you'll find that a lot of the very new analog uh, sort of euro racks, as they're called, which a lot of people play, have a lot of digital, uh, what seem like analog um, components with uh, chords and all that are actually digital, and they're doing a lot of those things as well. So there's a reverence
0: yeah. for the past, almost.
2: Uh, yeah, the performability of the the, in, the 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 connectivity is really great, and because it's less abstract, when you see people plugging things in, and it's like you're plugging in your own synapses when you make those kind of connections. Whereas you know the laptop lid is always like this abstract world, which is kind of denied from the performer and the, the listener feels that they're missing out on this other zone, which is in the, in, in the sort of virtual world of the computer. Whereas knobs and, and switches and cords, it's all out there. You can see what you imagine to be electrons flowing and um, connections being made.
0: Aaron Scullin is a sound artist and co-founder of the Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio, a unique not-for-profit organisation dedicated to the creation of electronic sound and music. In their workshop at the Meat Market in North Melbourne, MESS provides access to over 450 instruments, including the EMS instruments in this exhibition.
3: EMS stands for Electronic Music Studios, and it was originally... Uh, a private studio of an English composer, and gentleman by the name of Peter Zinoviev. And um, he started off just making uh, electronic music, mostly computer-generated electronic music. So Zinoviev owned one of the very earliest kind of personal computers and was making not necessarily electronic music, but music where the computer was devising the score, like almost like an early form of artificial intelligence kind of generated score. And then uh, as time went on, those guys interacted with an Australian composer by the name of Don Banks, um, who'd been to see a concert where one of Zinoviev's computers was controlling um, synthesizer modules made by another composer by the name of Tristram Carey. And he approached both of them and said, I really want a synthesizer that's small and portable that I can take back to Australia with me, that I can make some of this electronic sound because he was very enthused by it. And so uh, Zinoviev and Carey kind of hatched a bit of a plan and brought in the help of another gentleman by the name of David Cockerall, who was an engineer, an electronics engineer, and sort of was uh, good at designing all the finer points of the instrument. And um, they built this very first instrument that they called the Donbanks Music Box and later called the VCS one and VCS stands for Voltage Controlled Studio. So they built the VCS one for Don Banks. And then they all thought, oh well, we could probably make a bit of a business out of manufacturing synthesizers for people. And so it led to the three of them three of them then taking EMS and forming it into a company that manufactured these synthesizers that later became, they had subsequent models particularly like the VCS3 and the AKS that they put into the hands of musicians like um, Jean-Michel Jarre and Brian Eno and bands like Pink Floyd famously used them and they actually were the company that was responsible for making the first affordable synthesizers so it was very much that company led to the democratization in some sense of electronic music.
0: I guess when they were on the market, they wouldn't have been the only synthesizers on the market. Would that be correct?
3: Uh, Well, it's funny because when you kind of look at it historically, there's a lot of these things kind of percolate sort of simultaneously. So they weren't the only synthesizer on the market. Like Robert Moog, of course, was making his synthesizers. Uh, Don Buchler was making his sort of stuff. Um, And it's all kind of congeals around that sort of same time. We're talking about the late 60s, early 70s really here. But the thing that was distinct about EMS was that they did really make them incredibly cheap. They were very affordable. So because they were cheap, they cut a few corners in the design. So the instruments themselves are a bit idiosyncratic. They're a bit wonky. Whereas say, for example, like Robert Moog, no stone was left unturned and the electronics were very refined because he wanted to make a very high quality instrument but it subsequently the price put them outside of affordability. So often when we talk about it, we say, well, if you wanted to buy a Moog synthesizer, you could have bought a house, but if you wanted to buy an EMS synthesizer, <laughs> you're probably buying a small car in terms of the actual equivalency of like what the value was at the time. So they still weren't cheap, but they were cheap enough for like you know a band or an individual artist to actually buy and own one.
0: Uh, the thing I love about the EMS uh, that's on exhibit here is that you can see what you need to do to it. Like you you need to twiddle knobs, you need to push faders up and down and in certain respects you have to plug things in. So like you have to actually work at getting it to work and I guess that's part of the, the beauty of it, that sort of tactile kind of connection that you have to the instrument and also to the music that it's making.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing too about having to work to get it to work is that I think uh, when you're an artist creating sounds that you know the more labor sometimes you put into sounds it really does change your perspective on them sometimes it means you value them more highly sometimes it means if the sound isn't working out your doubly quick to like just put it in the bin because you're like I spent hours on this and it's not working (laughs) and throw it away like out of anger and frustration but certainly the physical aspect of the instrument is really interesting and that really comes back to Tristram Carey who kind of was in charge of that design of the instrument and like how to work with it and the other thing about the instrument that's very interesting as well is that I think a lot of people look at the aesthetics of these instruments now and sort of do look at them in a purely aesthetic way and think oh look at this great retro design all this sort of stuff But then once you sort of scratch the surface a bit, you realise that that aesthetic design is highly functional. The synthesiser in so many ways is trying to show you how it works. It's trying to sort of reveal its secrets as much as possible so that you can get busy making sounds as quickly as possible. And the tactility of it is a really important factor, I think, in terms of engaging with the sound. Because in electronic music now, of course, Majority of sound is made in like laptops and iPads and things, and they kind of lack a certain tactility. Mm. Certainly, a musical tactility. We're talking about different things. Like laptops are very good for data entry, so you're typing things in and moving a mouse. But when it comes to making music, like the idea of like doing that is is, an, is a bit of an anathema compared to say like playing the drums or playing a guitar, whereas like or even singing what requires like a lot of physical investment not quite the same with electronic music but at least with these old instruments that tactility does lead to that sort of musicality and sort of physical gesture
0: and you've got analog problems that go along with these electronic instruments there's there's not just the the circuitry involved but there's heat there's you know cold there's there's you have to use them to to get them to be used properly and be a regular working machine very much like a car very much like very much like any other instrument because I you know back in you know back in the day I used to play an instrument like the saxophone and the flute and they changed over the amount of time that you played them they would go out of tune because they were getting hot and the synthesizer is exactly the same they don't avoid those analog problems
3: yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're a living instrument in that regard. And I think that um, because electronic music hasn't been with us for very long in terms of the historical swathe of time, I mean, you mentioned the saxophone there, That's and even the saxophone's a relatively new instrument, but we think about, you know, flutes and violins and things. They've been with humanity for a long, long time now. And so when we look at these instruments, we kind of have this interesting kind of contemporary take on them where because these instruments made sound in the you know in that period in the 60s and 70s and then style and fashion moves on we think about them as being vintage mm. but in fact there's nothing sort of vintage or antique about them i mean peter zinoviev is still alive he's still with us so while one of the instrument builders is still around and david Cockerell's still alive that while these while the guys who build the instruments are still around well they're still contemporary instruments by any kind of historical kind of reckoning and with that yeah they are very analog and so uh, because they're technical like they do require sort of a bit of ongoing maintenance and that's a highly specialized thing but I guess in some ways too with a saxophone or whatever that you, know, you need to buy new reeds or sometimes occasionally like a spring might go or a valve might stop working and you do have to take it to a technician to to get it fixed but it is at the very essence of music that you know using these things means they wear down but they can be repaired and I guess the idea of a quality instrument is one that can be readily repaired readily fixed And with these instruments, yeah, they can all be readily fixed. In fact, with a lot of the other instruments we have in the MESS collection, it's really interesting to note that when you open up instruments that were built in this period, they're very much like, you know, the circuit boards have, like, lots of labelling on them. They're very clear about what you need to do to be able to repair them, that you could almost have taken it to anyone who has a basic understanding of electronics and they could fix them. Whereas, like, a lot of instruments that are made now that come out of China, they have, like, dense kind of integrated circuit boards, and they're kind of, like... To repair those is actually a much harder task than repairing like these old machines from the 70s because they were designed to be repaired. Whereas a lot of electronics now, not so much. You know, the planned obsolescence is a lot stronger in a lot of the more recent instruments that exist.
0: The thing I like about um, the synthesizers on exhibit here is that although they're they're complicated and 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 convoluted to a certain extent they're not intimidating they're actually quite inviting very much like the other parts of the granger museum where there's these instruments that 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 inspire curiosity for people to go well, what what does this do or well, what does that do and i find that these synths from from this age are very very similar
3: Yeah, well, it was interesting when we were having the initial discussion with Heather um, about putting the exhibition on and about just the ethos that we have at MESS in terms of, like, making sure these instruments are accessible. Robin and I were sort of thinking, well, you know, I hate going to exhibitions and seeing these instruments behind glass. Like, I want to play them. Like, I want to see what they do. Like, I want to have some experience of them. And certainly when we're talking about, like, Keith Humble and him wanting to, like, make music accessible for people to be able to use and all those sort of ideas, it seemed logical that, like, here in the exhibition we should, like, make sure that people can actually touch those instruments, like they can fulfil that desire to, like, want to manipulate something and hear what happens and hear what it makes because, you know, who knows who's going to walk through the door? Like, maybe there's someone... Some young kid who's like never experienced electronic sound, and all of a sudden it's like you know, switches a light bulb on in their head, or maybe it's a, even someone a bit older who's never really experienced electronic music before and maybe has a bit of a dim view of it, but then all of a sudden they put the headphones on and start turning some of the dials and kind of come to a different realization of like why so many people are fascinated with this type of sound and these type of instruments.
0: Robert Moog um, used to always say that synthesizers aren't fake instruments they're they're real instruments they the sound they make are supposed to be real sounds do you reckon there's still a even in this day and age do you think there's still a kind of reluctance to accept synths as you know real instruments or is that gone completely
3: uh look no i think it still exists for sure but i don't think it was quite as dominant as like probably the time that mo kind of um said that Um, And certainly like my experience of being someone who was like born in the 70s and grew up through the 80s and 90s was that I lived through a time when like synthesizers, I guess, in terms of the popular culture, like they were very much there, but the way that they were marketed and sold and presented was this idea of like, oh, look at this machine. It, it, It sounds authentically like a trumpet or it sounds authentically like a trombone or it sounds authentically like a string instrument and that's only become more sophisticated as time goes on with other forms of synthesis like sampling where you can literally record the instrument playing a million different ways and it sounds perfectly articulate and in fact a lot of commercial music that you might hear on television and on the internet it's actually made with a lot of artificial means and so but it sounds very authentic so to some extent like that kind of yeah these things are kind of like canned boxes that aren't real proper instruments that still exists but when you look at the designers who made, particularly these EMS instruments, they were coming out of like the avant-garde, they were coming out of experimental music, and they really wanted these things to actually make all kinds of non-musical sounds and actually be instruments in their own right. But it did really take it, because the wheels of culture moved pretty slowly, so it took a generation for that to kind of really occur. So as a young person myself, being aware that there were synthesizers around that were like you know, band in a box type situations, I was also aware that there were these other instruments that just didn't do any of that at all, and they were so much more compelling because they were like fascinating worlds that made these kind of crazy sounds. But it did take a long time for people to suddenly go, oh, well, the EMS VCS-3 can make a good trumpet sound to being the EMS VCS-3 makes a good sound. Like, it is its own instrument in its own right. And it's just taken a a long time for that realisation to happen. So now younger people that come into MESS and work with these instruments are much more ready to just take on the instrument as itself, like they kind of, that realisation has happened. And I think it was a frustration for the people at the time when they were making these instruments in the late 60s and early 70s that that wasn't people's first thought because I think electronic music was so strange and so foreign, it's hard to think about it now, but at the time it was so foreign that... That, that was the, that was a way that they could find a way into it, was that, oh, this thing can be made to sound like an acoustic instrument rather than being this strange beast that made sounds that nobody could really quite comprehend or didn't know where to put them.
0: It's Emerson, like and Palmer, fair for the Common Man. We have... That film clip to thank, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, Because yeah, <laughs> you'd see that machine and go, what
3: is that? Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, I know, I know, I know. Because, I and mean, then there's something sort of fascinating about them in that regard, you know? It's like, what do all these dials and knobs and all this
0: kind of stuff do, you know? See, once again, a very inviting... Not inti- it's not intimidating. You want to find out more. You want to go, well, what does this do? What's that? What is that? Can yeah. I do that? And then, really, you can.
3: Yeah, no, really, you can. And, I mean, and I think that's the thing, is that they do that's the very guess unique seduction of like a synthesizer as compared to say like i don't know like maybe people get seduced wanting to play the guitar because they see someone standing out the front of a band and there's a lot more theatrics that kind of go with the instrument and i think maybe through playing guitar you then develop a fascination with the object itself but with the synthesizer it's almost like The people playing the synthesizer, there's not much appealing about it. There's not really much theatrics. They're kind of stuck on stage. They're kind of there, static. But then the thing that they're operating is so strange and so foreign that it's sort of, in certain people's minds, it prompts particular questions. Like, I really think of, like, particularly to those early Roxy music, like Brian Eno, when he's in his, like, beautiful kind of transgender (laughs) phase, like, and just amazing looking. But he's playing this weird instrument. He's like this fascinating looking person playing this weird looking object and it's like in many ways that's a beautiful summary of like what draws people into like synthesis i think in some ways
0: i have to disagree with you there i, fi- <laughs> I find myself playing air synth a lot of times during <laughs> particular songs so i disagree about the yeah, lack well, of theatrics i
3: think we just, we just we just categorize you as one of the people we like to call synth curious <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, so there you have it. I'm synth-curious, and I'm not ashamed to say it. It's been such a wonderful day walking through the Granger Museum, seeing and, of course, hearing all of the exhibits in the sound of the future exhibition. I ask each of our guests today what they would like us to think about as we walk through the space listening to these sounds. Curator Heather Gaunt.
1: I guess I'd, I'd come to my own emotional experience of sound in developing the exhibition... And despite having well having had a classical music education, probably not despite, but because of it, I, I have a great love of sound, but it, it is, tends to be structured within certain traditions that I'm comfortable with. So I, I can remember being completely, hugely excited when I first listened to Ian Benighton's work on the Sequenza album, because I hadn't heard it before, put it on, and then it was just, wow, This this is what... This is this is different sound. This is this is a combination of, of choir and and taped sound and and the sound the evocative sounds of in this piece called Sleep. There's uh, the sirens. It's like potentially it's the sounds of nighttime, and he puts it together into this mix. And and so I was immediately in a completely different sonic environment. Um, in a way that when you're you put on you know what a beethoven symphony or something you know you sort of know what you're going to expect you're looking for tiny subtleties whereas this was a whole new world and so then i listened to um stockhausen's contactor again for the first time in probably 20 years again blew my mind I'm thinking this is just amazing how can i have forgotten how great this music is so i'm, I'm hoping that despite it being a physical exhibition, that it's an opportunity for people to really tune their ears and to be thinking about what they're hearing and to be thinking historically about what they're hearing. So instead of just being, I am hearing this now and it's blowing my mind or it's making me feel a certain way, but also, how might that have felt 50, 60 years ago? And and that's what I'm trying to do. So the colours of the walls, the orange vibe, the the sort of use of, of deliberately nostalgic, evocative, period-focused... Um, exhibition furniture like any exhibition you're hoping people go back into that time space but in this case with this extra layer of sound be in this space think about this space but then think about how it might have felt to hear this music then and then the chance for the people who come to visit the exhibition to actually make those sound themselves on the the VCS3 and the Cynthia through the collaboration with Mess and these fantastic instruments that we've been able to bring in so people can literally play them well then you do get to take yourself right back to that time and say this is a shift in 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 human sonic space
0: david chesworth
2: it's interesting isn't it the how this is also a nostalgic trip through so you're seeing kind of um the development of synths up till the sort of late 70s here and then this sort of stops and people have a the, 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 but there seems to be some authenticity to these older machines which, which is interesting so I think what I think is how interesting how the present moment and these things that were very futuristic are now exhibited in a museum and how they've become these sort of markers of a particular uh, no, idea of progression and how far we've come from this you know in now so I, I, I'm a bit I'm slightly weirded out um, it's, it's, it's very pleasurable and interesting but it's interesting it's in a sense, these objects are now becoming part of a narrative of <laughs> of this uh, progression when one it, it, you know not that long ago they were the progression, and they were kind of you know i mean my music was giving people the shits on triple R because it's like this is, <laughs> this is so not correct in many ways um it's not produced properly, and it's stupid sounds um But now they're sort of um, seen as yeah part of a text that's um, kind of established. So, but it's also interesting seeing that's how we progress and how things do go on and everything. So, um, I guess that's looking at this from a sort of more social aspect and yeah how museums function. Yeah, but. At the same token, I think it's great. I just love the fact that I go through and, um, and see these records on the wall that were so familiar to me and hear my own music playing and go, God, that's the last thing I would have ever have <laughs> ever thought would happen to this
0: music. Byron Scullin.
3: Uh, look, I think I just want people to think about like music and sound and the possibility that sort of exists for us to make all kinds of new sorts of music and sound and that that sort of vision of wanting to kind of grasp the future of sound and music is sort of really evidenced in these early stages here, that there's something very pure about the idea when it sort of first launches out, you know? And that with the work of the guys at EMS and with people like Keith Humble, that there's something very sort of pure and utopian and incredibly admirable at the heart of like what they were trying to achieve. And that was to just introduce people to this like fascinating new world of sound that they'd sort of stumbled upon themselves and just really wanting to share that and have as many people engage in it as possible. And the exhibition is really set up for that kind of spirit to kind of come through that this sense of like engagement and activity and uh, and fascination with the actual sounds that these objects make.
0: Thanks so much to Heather Gaunt, curator of the Granger Museum, composer David Chesworth and Byron Scullin from the Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio. The music pieces you hear through this podcast are all from the album 50 Synthesiser Greats by David Chesworth, released in 1979. Synthesizers: Sound of the Future exhibition at the Granger Museum runs until September 9, 2018. For more info, visit granger.unimelb.edu.au eavesdrop on experts stories of inspiration and insights was made possible by the university of melbourne this episode was recorded on august 9 2018 you'll find a full transcript on the pursuit website audio engineering by arch cuthbertson co-production dr andy horvath and sylvie van wall eavesdrop on experts is licensed under creative commons copyright 2018 the university of melbourne If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next
2: time for another eavesdrop on experts.